0: to tell them look i'm interested in in serving remote areas difficult terrain not very affluent people and everybody from the industries believe that this was madness
1: hello and welcome to the inciad emerging markets podcast where we interview business leaders and emerging market experts on business innovations market opportunities and macro level trends in emerging and frontier market countries join us for the next hour to dive deep into the world of emerging markets as we speak with top performers who are successfully investing working and living in these markets themselves hello i'm your host nick lal and today is our first episode today we are joined by christian Patero. christian is the ceo and founder of Pacific. Pacific is a next generation broadband satellite operator And what that means is that they provide universal, fast, high-quality broadband internet at an affordable cost to remote locations across the APAC region. In total, they serve over 600 million people in 25 countries by making use of 56 satellite spot beams. These countries that they're serving include remote nations such as Bhutan, Papua New Guinea, Tuvalu, East Timor, Vanuatu, and Kiribati. But they're also operating in more developed markets like New Zealand and also very large emerging market countries like Bangladesh and Indonesia. Pacific has raised over $200 million. It's also received lots of awards and recognition for their technological achievements, such as the Better Satellite World Award in 2018. And they've also been recognized for their business success and impact that they've made as they've created a successful business in markets that most did not think were financially viable, at least for this sort of a business, until Christian showed that it was possible to do it in these sort of countries and these sort of locations in these countries and actually do very well in them. And uh, without further ado, I'll let Christian get started and explain a bit more about what he does at Pacific and what led to him starting this wonderful emerging market company.
0: Uh, thanks, Nick. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak at your podcast. I'm Christian Patro, I founded Pacific Broadband Satellites in 2013. And uh, I've been in the satellite industry since uh, 1995. So it's been 26 years of experience. And I'm in uh, an INSEAD MBA 03D. So the idea behind uh, Pacific is really to, to provide high speed, low cost, and highly accessible broadband to populations in rural and remote areas for at the time being in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, but we do have plans to expand the service outside of that coverage to other geographical areas uh, by uh, adding a fleet of additional satellites over time. So Pacific provides satellite broadband. To do that, it has launched a satellite in 2019 the satellite was built by Boeing and is what is called a high throughput satellite. Um, so it's a satellite that is specifically designed to provide broadband direct to the premise. The end user would deploy, install a small satellite dish, and the internet would be provided directly at their house, at their company. Uh, schools uh, hospitals all kind of government facilities all kind of enterprise at the moment we have several thousands of sites that we are serving already and we're growing quite fast across the pacific and and uh, and southeast asia so yeah that, in a nutshell that's where we are it's been a very a long and rocky road to put together a project like this. Uh, of course, it's not cheap to uh, achieve a goal like this. And uh, we, to, to, to that end, we have raised 227 million US dollars of funding uh, over a period of about uh, seven years. We went on and, and raised all that funding and we continue raising funds for trying to launch more satellites.
1: So I'm going to get more into your journey at Casivic in a minute, but I just wanted to first ask if there were any influences in your life or mentors that influenced you to um, eventually start this company or if you already had the goal to be an entrepreneur since you were young and uh, what the chain of events were that led you to start the company?
0: Well, I, I guess I've always been attracted to entrepreneurship i have a very typical entrepreneur psychological profile if you if you profile me i'm almost off the chart when it comes to entrepreneurship you know i like ambiguity i see opportunities in everything i touch everything i see i i'm a very tenacious person generally so and you need that for to, to venture into entrepreneurship I wouldn't say that there is a other than the usual family members, etc. There's there's no single mentor that I can point to, but there were people who kind of uh, served as catalysts in my life to get me to this place. I would say some some people who some professor at uh, during college, some people like uh, I can think of a friend who. He helped me visit a factory it was actually a, a repair shop for aircraft engine that gave me the taste for aerospace so it was really a, a chain of events you know how i ha- i was one of the last one that had to do the compulsory military service in in belgium it's long gone actually it's just after my batch they closed it down <laughs> so i was in a sense unlucky but it was a it was a blessing in disguise because i was assigned to the military academy. And I did some projects there that helped me go into the satellite business afterwards. So, you know, it's just a sequence of events, really. And, and also, I mean, finally, to get into Pacific itself, there was a, my good friend Sebastian here in, in Singapore, who uh, whom I, take, I took a bicycle ride with in 2013 in, in, on the East Coast in Singapore. And when we discussed the idea of Pacific there, and he really thought it was a good idea and it's really snowballed from that particular uh, bicycle ride. So sometimes it just pinpoints how great journeys in life need to start from a spark and that was the spark. Got
1: it And, and in our last conversation you mentioned that you had a bit of a period where you went back to France and had the idea and you had to convince family and friends if you go a little bit more into that and also how um, you found your North Star to keep going and that you, you knew that you'd believe so deeply in it that it, it would work out.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I guess they they're they are always naysayers, uh, but you do need to have that North Star. Of course. One, one thing is that I must say that if I had been probably 15 years younger, I may have given up because I would have been at the, Earlier stage in my career, and I would have seen a lot of senior people telling me not to do it, right? Mm -hmm. But as I was older, I saw those more senior people and more as my peers. And I felt like when they said it was uh, madness, it actually emboldened me because I felt that I had a different perspective. I had better ideas than they had. And I had at least as much uh, as good a knowledge as them of the industry. When it comes to family, yes, of course, my wife was not necessarily particularly happy to see me go into that space. It's always good. She's risk averse and it's always good to have that risk averse angle to make you be careful where you, where you set foot, really. But you know, I have this fire in me, I have, the, again, like I said, the, the profile of an entrepreneur. So I saw the opportunity. And also, I continued discussing with that friend who I had had this bicycle ride with, who helped me incubate the business. Inside, he had a, a bit of an incubator, a small private equity fund. So he kind of nurtured the business in the earlier stage. And then he also gave me one of his staff in secondment. And that person now is all is our chief operating officer. And with, with him, Cyril, who really came into business I would say like a couple of months into the making really helped us drive the, helped me drive the business, help bouncing ideas. And I, I would say like, he was almost like a co-founder in the early stage. Yeah.
1: Very cool. And and I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about the fundraising process and, and what you learned from it, how you started and how you were able to, to raise uh, such a huge amount of money.
0: Yeah. So the fundraising is, is, of course, very daunting at the beginning when you see you had to reach such high amount of money. I had been in a in a I had worked for a year and a half, two years in another startup where they had raised close to a billion dollars for a constellation of satellites. So I had seen, I had learned there how what are the elements to put into place to raise that kind of money. And I felt like it was possible, and in a sense, what well, was two hundred million dollars compared to a billion. So, but still, it was it was yeah, it was very daunting. So, the way you do it is by snowballing the the project, and uh, you take the first step by raising angel money. Then you go and you evangelize the market, and you try to get off takers in order to solidify. Establish the business around a few uh, telco or you know general off-takers, internet service provider contracts that, in a sense, promise you that they will take the bandwidth and for whom you're gonna you're gonna bring great value once you once you get the satellite going, and then after this you raise more money on the back of that, then you go get more off-takers and you snowball the, the project like this, and then along the way, of course. You have some industrial milestones where you, you buy the satellite, of course, you start you sign the contract for the satellite, then you sign a contract for all the ancillary equipment around the satellite, all the antennas, teleports, etc. on the ground, you buy the rocket, it's another great milestone. You buy the insurance for the whole project. So I would say that yes, it, it seems very very far off when you start, and you almost feel it's impossible. But along the way, I must admit that you know I kind of delivered the project, maybe on a slower pace than I had originally thought, but pretty much with the same format, the same process that was originally set up. So yeah, it's it's like a no great long distance adventure. I think I mentioned last time when we talked about this guy who, uh, who crossed the the South Pole. That was quite interesting for me when I heard his speech on how he he did that. And in fact, when I asked him how how did he manage to cross the so- South Pole solo, and uh, especially he did it with like equipment from the eighteen hundred to prove a point or something. And he said it's hey, just just one step at a time. It is just every day. Every day as you, as you're walking through this journey and there's this hardship that you imposed on yourself, you just set yourself a goal. It's not the end goal. You can never set the end goal as the main goal that is going to drive you every day. And that, that's very much the same in an, in an entrepreneurial journey.
1: Totally. Are there any habits or practices in, in your daily life that uh, remind you of that goal? Or how do you implement that sort of uh, a marathon mentality into your day-to-day actions?
0: Well, <laughs> it's, it's actually a, a very good question on how do you motivate yourself? One big motivator, in fact, is that although f- failure is a friend, every day you, you see failure face-to-face, basically you know success comes in in small increments but failures come in big blows but you know that failure is not an option you don't want it as an option you know it's there you have this strange relationship with failure more than with success so every time you take a little step a little success you just want to hang on to that you hang on to your last little success And then you work because the next level success is inside. But it's really a question of personality. Some people really need that uh, great excitement in life, right? So they need that in order to help them move forward. You need to be excited by great success, by every day having your dose of adrenaline. And with entrepreneurship, you will hardly get that. It's a fairly dull life. It's very much that crossing of the South Pole, and it's it's a very lonely journey. And so, yeah, I, and and it suits me. It suits my personality. I'm generally more like <laughs> I have a more dull personality. I, would, I mean, I'm not saying I'm completely dull, but i I I can deal with the dullness of the day if you want. And I don't need that that constant excitement. Actually, what I like as a hobby. Is like long distance cycling, or I, lo- I love um, I love swimming, where I get my introspection, and I you know I'm alone in my own little microcosm. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a really I, I believe it's a question of personality, and, and every entrepreneur to be or wanna be needs to question themselves if they are up to that challenge. Uh, you will find that trait among very many entrepreneurs that they have the, that personality where they they can deal with grit uh, more than other people can. And it's not a criticism. It's just a question of personality. The world needs all kinds of people, but I don't think that everybody is made for entrepreneurship.
1: Sure. No, I think that's great advice, especially helpful for a lot of uh, the graduates um, now who are <laughs> ending up in this COVID environment. Um, Switching gears a little bit, I want to touch on the fact that this is the Emerging Markets podcast. So I'd like to know why you chose to operate in this part of the world and also um, what your experience has been getting business done in these emerging market countries.
0: But I guess to start with, I'm a big fan of the Blue Ocean strategy from from INSEAD, right? So I, I like to make competition irrelevant. I like value innovation. They like to really try to fit a business into a market that does not interest anybody. When I started Pacific, I actually went around and started and talked to a number of people and to tell them, look, I'm interested in, in serving remote areas, rural areas, potentially islands or highlands as well, difficult terrain, not very affluent people. And everybody from the industries believed that this was madness because those people don't have money, they live on subsistence. Why would you go after a market like this when you can go after big, big corporations uh, like everybody does? Why don't you go after the military like everybody does? Why don't you try to connect airlines or do broadcast, television broadcast, and serve affluent people like everybody does? And just the fact that everybody want, wanted to do what everybody does, it's, it really, the blue ocean resonated with me at that point, really to, to, it made me realize that I was onto something. I needed to build a business that could, could go and serve a poor, I guess, non-affluence, not necessarily poor, poor is not the right word, but a a a market that had a modest disposable income. And I needed to build the company around that, streamline it, focus it, in order to serve people who didn't have a lot of money, give them real value. That's really the, the notion of value innovation. Give them r- real value. Of course, get paid for it. And then use the money of investors and get that money to them. So it's really a money. It's really a system that basically takes money from the poor, gives it, give it to the rich if you want. But at the same time, deliver great value to the less affluent so that they can grow and themselves become richer, become wealthier. And it's a real win-win system that you can build around that. And it's spot on the uh, Blue Ocean strategy. So that actually creates a wonderful competitive moat around the business because it's not a very appealing market generally. And, it, and believe me, that's the question we get from investors all the time. Well, why would I invest in you if you're serving those markets where people don't have a lot of money? yes. It's true, but the good thing is because you're asking me that question, it means that very few people are interested in this market. Second, is because not many people are interested in this market, the volumes are very large. Very a lot of people do not have a service given to them. And they are they are you know uh, potential customers that do have money in those remote areas you have government operations in those in those areas you have oil and gas you have mining you have plantations you do have your processing plants primary industry so it does exist you do have a real need there so that's that's really the reason why uh, I chose those markets because the need was there the need was addressed. and you know blue it was it was Exactly spot on, Blue Ocean. Now, is there are there different differences between countries? There are cultural differences when it comes to contractual engagement, for instance. When it comes to speed of business, of doing business, it's uh, you have some differences, but in general, you know, especially in Northfield, it, it, it's all very similar. People need internet wherever they are. There's nothing really specific about a market on how they use Internet, why they use Internet, what system they want compared to, what choices they have. It's it's very, very similar ways You speak about. You talk about the, the, the Philippines, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, etc. But in some countries you have more money, like in New Zealand. So New Zealand for us, is more a residential market where you know people are so that's very different than the the rest of the markets but so that's just one country one affluent country that we have in our coverage all the other countries are developing developing countries and to us they are they're very similar all of them and i'm sure if i was to expand as we expand our coverage into central asia africa etc we'll find a lot of similarities in the need for internet
1: Sure. Very interesting. What has been the most difficult part of operating in these developing countries, less affluent markets, other than getting investment? And, and, and I guess the second part of that question is what advice would you give to someone who wants to start a business in one of these countries and is looking into it, but not sure where to start?
0: I would say there are probably three pieces of advice of three general trends that you will see in these markets. The first is whatever people tell you as a, as a businessman wanting to enter the developing world, it, money is always uh, scarce in those places. It's not a commodity. It comes hard, right? It's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't come easy. You, you always have to fight for money. So if you have a contract with someone, whoever that is, Money will come late. Money will come bit by bit. And may money may not come home. You may have pieces missing. So you have to be prepared for that and build your business around that. You'll have to fight for every dollar you get. Even if you have delivered the service, it's always good to get to, to change your business plan and have, or the business model and and get cash on delivery, it is always better. So that's the first one. The second one I would say is about timeline. Everything takes longer. Generally, people are less efficient, they're less driven. They communicate less also. Um, That's either their culture or simply a lack of infrastructure. You know, if you talk about Papua New Guinea, you could have small people, you know, well-educated people there. But if they have to go to a place, they may have to travel a very long time to get there and sometimes have no communication. Uh, In Vanuatu, for instance, I've done business there with a a number of of parties and sometimes the principal would disappear for four or five days. And when they reappear, you know, everybody understands that. That you reappear after four or five days, you've been out of comms for all this time because you've had to do business in a remote village somewhere. So, everything takes time, plus, decision making takes time primarily because of the first consideration I mentioned because money is usually lacking. So, you know, budgets are set up slowly, and sometimes budgets are set up and they don't hold together. So, Yes, even though people will tell you to rush, rush, rush and tell them and, uh, and, and give them proposal quickly, you have to be prepared for substantial delay, delays beyond what you could possibly imagine. Right? And then the last piece of advice is about contractual engagements. Very often, you know, we, we use in well the where I come from, in Europe, contracts mean a lot. You know, you can enforce contract very easily. In the developing world, it's a lot less. so. Contractual engagements are very fluid. You can enforce it, but it's going to take a lot of time and money, etc. Sometimes it's probably better to just work on a, on a handshake or a piece of napkin where you put, you put the terms, you sign it. And that's it. And that will save you a lot of legal fees because some of my best contracts that I have, the best customers I have, have a very short and nice little contract with very little skin in the game. And others, even from big companies or sometimes governments, completely galvanized watertight contracts are not uh, do not materialize and are not delivered. I mean, are not paid for and so, yeah, I would say that those are probably the the, the three most important pieces of advice there.
1: Great. And just out of curiosity, what sort of clients have been your favorite ones to work with, or have turned out really well? And then, um, a, alongside that, uh, what what are some of your favorite parts of working in these emerging market countries?
0: Well, the the, the clients typically are. Uh, I can't. I can't pinpoint a country. I can't pinpoint a, a culture. But it's the people I have I, I have enjoyed working with uh, the most are people that I've built a relationship with personally. Businessmen that you know, you see, or uh, have something different, have you know a streak of loyalty, of integrity. It's, you know, it it depends what culture, but in in many other developing world, integrity can be fluid, but it's the ones I have worked the best with are are typically people that resonated with some of my values and uh, that those are the people that not necessarily the big companies, not the big names. This, it's, it usually boils down to one individual that you trust and that you feel that you want to go with. It's it's not easy, especially if you come from Europe, US, you know, Australia, the developed world, and you want to venture in the developing world. You know, there's going to be a layer of distrust. Always, you're going to feel and, and the other way around as well. So it is going to be this cultural barrier. So it, it does take time, but you're going to probably have some signs of people who will show interest, genuine interest in what you're doing, uh, will see the value for their country and will want to build a relationship. Also, it's always a good sign if a, if one of those customers or business relationship bring a lawyer with them for instance or ask you to go and sign a contract at one of the at their lawyer that means they they place some value in the contractual engagement
1: <laughs> great very good um and, and finally do you have an ultimate goal for Pacific, and if so how far are you from hitting it
0: yeah it's an it's a interesting question it's it's really a balance between how much is enough? That's one thing. So you have to set your, your target in life. The Second is, is probably how far are you, am, am, am I prepared to go physically? Because running a business uh, like this with lots of financial responsibilities like this is very taxing health-wise. You know, it, it's it's very tiring. The stress level is very high or can be very high. And sometimes you have long sleepless nights of uh, of work. So there's there, there balance between that and also the desire to achieve something, right? The desire to push the, the, the envelope and do something that n- nobody has ever built before. So my personal plan would be Without any consideration for the first, for health, or or how much is enough, but just for the goal would be to create a global constellation, cover Africa, cover South America, every island of the planet, Central Asia, Middle East, uh, the whole of Asia, and and connect every village in the world. So, when am I going to be able to achieve that? Well, I hope so. I'm definitely going for it at the moment. And the great thing also is the company is growing. We have 60 people at the moment. And by bringing more people in the company, I'm also bringing more support, smarter people in their field. You know, when before we had one person doing it all, we can actually have people who are specialized in their field rather than having more generalists, which uh, is, I guess, how to build, you build corporation right how it's a question of organizational behavior and how you build the organization but i do see that perhaps on a small scale at the moment we're only 60 but i can see a way forward where you know we can build it into a 500 or thousand people corporation with with 10 20 satellites in space
1: Great. I actually have one last question. I was wondering if you have any advice you'd like to give or a message you'd like to share to the, the current NCAD students?
0: Well, um, yeah, I guess I would have one piece of advice is that you have to cherish and nurture the NCAD network. What I'm doing today here and what I'm, do- I'm doing regularly in contributing to that network, coming to give speeches and spending time to nurture the various cohorts and help professors or whoever is active at to in clubs, etc., is actually to nurture that network and to give back what that network has given me. I don't think that I would have been able to put together the business I have put together so far without the support of of INSEAD Network. Not of INSEAD itself, although INSEAD is a great school and uh, you know, certainly is always willing to help, but of the network. And so I think everybody at INSEAD who's currently a student should take a time and ponder whether they have already started doing that and whether they're planning to and how they are planning to do that. Whenever I get an email or a LinkedIn message, and I see that the person is an INSEAD alum or an INSEAD student, I'm always more inclined to give my time to that person than other people. And I really invite students to do the same.
1: Great. Yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. I think I've been seeing that myself already. And... Anyway, this was extremely enjoyable. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure you're very busy. So it it really means a lot that you're willing to join us for this podcast. And yeah, thank you again.
0: Thank you, Nick. Thanks. All the best.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the NCAD Emerging Markets Podcast. To stay up to date on events we may be hosting, emerging market news, and to build your personal network, please feel free to join the NCAD Alumni Emerging Markets Interest Group on LinkedIn.